Hi, this is Jenna. And this is Kelly. And you're listening to ODFM. Today's episode is One Demand for Murder. going on. Yes. That's quite the ultimatum. Yeah, it is actually. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. This is a good one. And I've actually had a few requests for this one. I <gasps> thought there wasn't any new information. So, and I, I guess I've never really known the whole story. So oh, it was something I was excited to look into. Yeah. Is it out of Florida? <laughs> no, <laughs> it is out of Colorado. Oh, it's a local it one. Of course it is. <laughs> We There's only so do many Colorado, here. Florida, and Australia. Yeah. And then we <laughs> sprinkle like a couple it. other ones here. <laughs> it's kind of scary how much there is going on here all the time. Anyway. What's happening in Colorado? I don't is there know. Like a, is there like a like a vortex of like, what's happening there? It's like a high altitude must kill sickness. I don't know. Ugh. Did you see the new, Did you saw the girls Ghostbusters? Yes, I love that Where there that was one. like, they, they drew those lines. Oh, that's right. They Remember? Intersect- and then yes. that's where the ghost came in. So Yes, maybe it, that's what's happening. We should look up and see if there's Yeah, it Colorado. could be all the all the mountains. They they created some weird vortex. Ley lines. That's what they call them. Ley, line. Ley lines. I don't, know, I don't remember what it was for. I'll have to watch again, but whatever. But All so, right. Okay. You ready to hear about the one demand? Yes. Oh, it's a cool Tuesday morning on February 9th of 1960. So this is kind of an older one. Okay. Not very recent. This is when they have milkmen delivering. Well, I still have a milkman, so. Do you really? I do. I My best friend growing up had a milkman because I, I was confused by it. I was like, yeah. what goes in here? And she's like, <laughs> the milk. And I'm like, you don't get it from the store? <laughs> oh, oh, it's so good. And, oh, and the, cool. yeah, the dairy's not very far from here. So that's why we can have a milkman. Anyway. Okay. So this milkman, he's on his morning delivery rounds. And he, he pulled up to a single lane timber bridge. Like old style bridges. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. Things they don't have anymore. It's over Turkey Creek in Golden, Colorado, which is up in the mountains. Well, not quite up in the mountains. It's on the way. That's where you want something that's only one way. Right. Where people are <laughs> we're up in the mountains. It's <laughs> cool. We don't need yeah, two ways here. Yeah, there's some really scary drives up there, but this has been changed since then. But this is in Golden, Colorado, but there was a car blocking his way so he couldn't cross the bridge. The car, an international travel all, which I had no clue that what that was, but it turns out it's like a station wagon of sorts. One of those big old cars. Just say it's a station wagon. It's a big old. (laughs) It's a travel all. Oh, was it? Was it before they like (laughs) dubbed them? Yeah, dubbed it a station wagon. Maybe that's what it is. It was the. It was the original. It's the OG OG family family truckster. Yes, it's giant. Whatever it is, but it sat with its engine running and the radio on, but. Nobody's in sight. So the milkman's like, honks his horn like tons of times. And he's thinking maybe the driver's around, but no one's coming. So finally he gets out. He moves the car off to the side of the road himself. Oh, you're kidding. He like got in and was like, I'm moving. He's like, well, I got to do my rounds. Yeah. Well, what else are you going to do? And then after moving the car, as he's walking back to his truck, he notices a large reddish brown stain on the bridge. Yeah, not good. So he's like, oops. Shit. So calls the police. Police come to the scene. Upon arriving, they notice a large amount of blood in the dirt. And in the small creek below the bridge lay a glasses lens, like from (gasps) some glasses. Yeah. And two hats. One's a tan fedora and the other's a baseball cap. This is not a good sign. Not a good sign. This is all very bad signs. Golden, Colorado in 1960 was a small town where most folks knew one another. Not anymore. It's it's basically <laughs> Denver now. Oh, <laughs> the, it's all grown. The Western way of life was still prevalent. And on the main drag, cars shared the road with horses and an electric trolley. Oh, my kid would have loved that. Yes, we still have a trolley in Fort Collins. And in fact, I'm supposed to do an ad for Christy for the trolley from Poor Brothers Pub. And I'm sorry, Christy, I haven't gotten to it yet. <gasps> I will. Well, I hope by the time this airs, you have. <laughs> yes, I better. Because I think, you know, the trolley only runs in the summer. She kind of needs her ad on the trolley. Uh, the mountain town was a pic- 
picturesque scene with a river running through town nestled in between Lookout Mountain, where Buffalo Bill is buried. Oh. And North Table Mountain to the north, obviously. South Table Mountain with its castle rock casting a glow above the Coors Brewing Plant. This is where Coors originated. Okay. All right. Yes. Only 15 miles to the east was the bustling city of Denver. So this is why they've all grown together. Basically, Golden is Denver now. And for over 100 years, the Coors family had been making their beer in the Golden, Colorado facility. And they're still here. Wow. I'm getting quite the history lesson right now. Yeah. You need all the Coors history because... Adolf Coors III, known to everyone in Golden as Ad, was a popular, friendly type. And even though he's one of the heirs to the Coors dynasty, he's humble and kind. Even though his name is Adolf? Adolf Coors, yes. The third. The third. I know. I, well, you know, the name just has a really bad yeah, connotation. It does. You know, so I mean, <laughs> so. you know, you don't hear it much other than Hitler. But that's why he went by Ad, I think, instead yeah, of I don't, Adolf. I don't blame him. <laughs> and could you imagine if someone named their kid that now? Oh, What's God. a family name? No, no. You, no. You uh, yeah. <laughs> we don't want that family around. <laughs> okay. So humble and kind. He's 45 and the father of four kids and had graduated from the p- prestigious Cornell University. Good for yeah. him. And he'd even been a semi-professional baseball player. Really? Yeah. That's kind of cool. I hadn't known that before this. He had risen in the course company to CEO and chairman of the board, which is Probably a little easier if you're related to... <laughs> I was going to say, you know, he already had the name, and since he was yeah. the third, they just had to, yeah. like, etch in Kinda one like... more little I on the end, <laughs> and they're like, well, we already have your going to add you in. Yeah. <laughs> Ad and his wife, Mary, had been married for 20 years. Ad and Mary, despite their wealth, enjoyed the simple life on their horse ranch just 12 miles from the brewery, so he didn't have very much of a trek to get to work. On February 9th of 1960, this is that cold morning, Mm -hmm. Ad's normal route to the brewery was under construction and had been since January, which forced him to detour along a winding stretch of gravel road for four miles to Turkey Creek Canyon, where it later connected back to the highway he normally traveled. That morning, Ad kissed his family goodbye. He's in a good mood, ready to tackle his appointments for the day at the brewery. He left at 8 a.m., but he never arrived at work. Oh, crap. Did he drive a family truckster? He did. Yes. <laughs> Damn it. Local police that came upon the abandoned white and turquoise station wagon. Mm. So it was white <laughs> and turquoise. <laughs> I had like a giant mouthful. <laughs> white and turquoise. Mm. That's a Can't you see it? It's vision. like, yeah, it's like the old uh, 50s ad, you know, the guy in the fedora. Oh. I'm like, I thought the, uh, that like, um. What was the one in um, Vacation? Like, Oh, um, God, the brown. Like pea green. It was like this horrible pea green. I thought that was a, a look. but That wow. one was a look. I mean, turquoise. I think this one might have been a little better. I don't know. <laughs> Immediately, when police came upon it, they recognized it as belonging to Adolf Coors III. Because not a lot of people had a turquoise yeah, in Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Station, Station wagon. wagon. So a frantic search oh, was about to begin, and police released an all-points bulletin for ad. But no one reported seeing him after that morning. Oh. I know. Not good. 24 hours later, the FBI was able to get involved because of the federal kidnapping statute that had been instated after the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's baby in 1932. Do you remember hearing about that case? I do remember the case, but I didn't know. But it, I see how it has these repercussions yes. now where you can... Yes. It actually made it possible for the FBI to get involved. Oh, these little flies are back. I was just going to say, are you going to clap at me again? <laughs> listen, listen, Jen. Oh, where does it come from? I don't even have a plant down here. <sighs> you, need a, you need a Venus fly trap. <laughs> oh, good idea. I need like a big one, like the one right. from... Little Shop of Horrors. Yes, Little Shop of Horrors, the giant one. Yeah, but then it's going to be talking and yeah. commentary in the background. Oh, Seymour? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, because of Charles Lindbergh's baby being kidnapped in 1932, it made the kidnapping a federal offense. So the full scope of the FBI's resources could be offered, which, of course, it's going to be offered with someone with such stature. Exactly. Yes, says the Coors. (laughs) This is funny. The FBI gave the case the code name Coornap. I was like, oh, God, that's not even cool, man. Coornap. Wow. 
Jadgar Hoover was the agency's director at the time. We all know that name. And he stamped the case top priority because... Wanted his beer. (laughs) I mean, yeah, he's like a heavy beer drinker. He's like, I need my Coors. If Coors is gone, we can't have Coors. Right. I can't have my my stash like depleting. Like, I need need this. I need this now. I mean, yeah. So J. Edgar Hoover had spoken directly with Adolf's father, which is Adolf Coors Jr., Okay. And gave us assurances that it would be handled. We'll take, we'll find them. It's good. You know, we got this. We got this. I mean, it's Colorado. We got right. this. How far could he be? Yeah. I mean, there's just a million mountains everywhere. Right. Eh, no biggie. The glasses, lens, and hats were identified as having belonged to Ad. The next morning, Ad's wife received a typewritten note in the mailbox. It said, Mrs. Coors. Your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI. He dies. Cooperate. He lives. Ransom, $200,000 in 10s and $300,000 in 20s. Isn't that weird? It's very specific. (laughs) 200,000 in 10s. That's a lot of bills. Wow. That is a lot of bills. There will be no negotiating. Bills. Used, non-consecutive, unrecorded, unmarked. Warning, we will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Directions, place money and this letter and envelope in one suitcase or bag. Have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in Denver Post, Section 69. (laughs) Sign ad, King Ranch, Fort Lupton. I know. (laughs) What? What? I know. Advertise a tractor for sale. So many things going through my head. (laughs) I know. It goes on. And I never could find this out. I even Googled this and I have no clue what it means. Wait at NA9-4455 for instructions after ad appears. And I looked that up everywhere and I'm like, what does that stand for? Is it like a road? Is it, you know, a a number? I don't know. But all it would come up with, with was the ransom number. That's so weird. So weird. Or ransom note. Sorry. What? Okay. So first small issue. Mm-hmm. The police and the FBI already know. Right. <laughs> we're, we're, we've, we've already Oops. blown that. Obviously, this is predates social media. Yeah. And, it didn't make it there fast doesn't enough. doesn't travel fast enough. <laughs> it didn't get there fast enough with the snail mail. So shit. What do you? Yeah. It's not like you can write back and go, hmm. Small problem. They um, found it first before right, I got the letter. I didn't call it in. They found it. Maybe don't leave his car in the middle of a bridge. Right. Where know. someone else uh, might come upon it first. <laughs> exactly. Oops. Okay. Well, the note goes on. Okay. So it says. It's still going? What it's is this? still like, going. Santa's this is a list? Is it yeah. like a roll? Like, what the hell? <laughs> He's like, I've got to get all my thoughts out <laughs> in one. This is like a, like Jean Benet Ramsey, where it was like front oh my and God. back and it kept yes. going. Like- oh my God. Yes, totally. So it goes on to say, deliver immediately after receiving call. Any delay will be regarded as a stall to set up a stakeout. Understand this. Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that money. If you follow the instructions, he will be released unharmed within 48 hours after money is received. I I love the idea of, like, advertise a tractor for sale in Denver Post. (laughs) How long does all this shit take? I mean, this is a lot of things to do. Dude, especially back then. Like, oh, I got to make some calls. It's going to take a while to get that ad out. I got to get money. Right. I have to take the horse over to the post office. (laughs) and I (laughs) I know. I got to go to the, like, 14 banks. Shit. They don't all have that kind of money. Nobody has $200,000 in tens. And three hundred thousand dollars in twenty. Oh my god! <laughs> I'd have to go to several banks. Right. So you're going there. I'm like, no, I need this. Well, we don't have that on hand right now. Will you accept? No, it has no, to be. It has to be ten. Many. And don't count them. And don't. Con- oh my record god. Record them, and they can't don't. be consecutive, and they have to be used, and they can't be marked. And they have to be used. Ah! Ah! If they're not used, I'm gonna have to crumple them all up and like it's gonna spit take on a lot them. of time. <laughs> I have to wash them. This is a lot. That's a lot. What the hell? Okay. I know. So what what was the timeline? Uh 48 hours she had. That's a 
It's a lot to do in 48 hours. What is it, 48 hours? Well, it was like, yeah, something about... Or he'll be, well, he'll be released in 48 hours. That's right. He'll be released. Okay, okay so it was like... What we, if it takes all two set. weeks? Right. What if it yeah. takes, what if it takes longer? Yeah. How often does the post come out? Is it every day? Is it a weekly paper? I mean, Good that's question. a problem. That's, that's true. That could be... That could really delay it. Edition. Like, I hope you guys... Are really good at cooking because Ad is a big guy and he likes a lot of food. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, but you're right. Mary was freaking out too because she's like, "Oh my god!" He said, "Don't contact the FBI. You guys are already here." Right. And the FBI is like, "Yeah, sorry, it's already out in the newspapers and stuff." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so before you get the ad out, it's already going to yeah. be in the paper that we. That yeah, we're it about. already had come out that that morning that Shit. Ad was missing. So. <laughs> Everyone knew. And so Mary was advised by the FBI to begin making arrangements for getting the 500K while they worked with the bank to coordinate the selection of denominations and recording the serial numbers, which was also in the note, like, don't you know, write this all down. And Mary's all like, holy shit, this right. ransom letter that says not to do this, not to involve you, yeah. don't mark the bills. But because the APB had been put out, it had gone out to the news outlets and it had already made headlines, so... Oh, shit. But the FBI tested the envelope and letter for fingerprints, but no impressions of value were found. Okay. So there had to be something on there, but they couldn't tell. But the letter still gave them valuable clues. This is pretty cool. Oh, okay. So they could tell the author was fairly well-educated, writes well, and proficient in typing... Because there were no typos at all. It wasn't like he had, you know, like usually Impressive. they'd have to go back and right, fix this was all like those things. Serious typewriter. This isn't just delete, delete. Yes. So they knew this person had taken typing classes at some point. Okay. Um, and also <laughs> after each period at the end of a sentence, there were double spaced, just like taught in typography class. Yes. Or typing class typography. <laughs> Oh, the double space. Yes. So they got that kind of hint from it. The typeface used was distinctive. Comic Sans. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's the exact same thought I had. Because <laughs> it's the worst one ever. Right, exactly. I have that's a friend hilarious. that hates it so much and her kids have joked that they're like, we're going to make sure that your grave is done in Comic Sans. <laughs> Could you imagine? So going, ah, could no. you imagine going through a cemetery? No. Like, is that comic sense? <laughs> I think that is. I asked for future a bold. Right, exactly. Oh my god. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but this proprietary proprietary there it is typeface was used by just two manufacturers. Oh. Yes, I want to call it Hermes because it's spelled the same, but it's Her Hermes. 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 Okay. Yeah. Something like that. I watched a documentary. Okay. Herms. Interesting. Maybe that was it in Switzerland. And so this is companies, not typefaces. Oh, okay. And the Royal Light Company in Holland. The numbers were the telltale clue as to which one was the typewriter came from. <gasps> so the numbers were rounded instead of kind of straight. Okay. On the on the bottom. Unlike any other typewriter at the time. So they knew it was a match for the Royal Light portable typewriter. Ooh. So that wheedled down which typewriters and where they could be bought. Um, the factory had made them in the late 50s and early 60s and sold them widely in department stores, unfortunately. Okay. However, the kidnapper's typewriter did have a specific defect. The lowercase letter S was slightly lower than all the other letters on the line. So. Oh. That narrowed it down a little bit more. That's awesome. So cool. So while the FBI and the police continued their tenacious investigation, the Coors family awaited a call from the kidnappers, ready with the money and ready to carry out any and all demands they made. But the call would never come. <gasps> I well, shit. Shit. So I thought we could take a break here. <laughs> but <laughs> wait but for, she our, didn't, for the call. <laughs> but she didn't tell the police. They she found didn't the call. do it. She didn't do it. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine the stress? Uh, no, I, I, mm -hmm. I absolutely cannot imagine the stress. No. While you're sitting there waiting. Oh, my hoping. God. Forget it. No. Oh, jeez. Hey, hey, hey. You know how we've told you about becoming a fan on Patreon? Yeah, you need to do it. 
The reason is we have a lot of mini-sodes coming out, a lot of extra bonus content, and your monthly support helps us keep going and doing the things we love, which is researching murder and talking about it and telling you about it. So if you're ready, go to patreon.com slash podcast to get started. Okay, so the FBI was dogged and impressive in their skills at seeking out every lead they could. They set up surveillance and recording devices at the Coors home, went to the brewery to question anyone who might have helpful info. Deputies stood in front of Ad and Mary's house, stopping all passing vehicles and questioning occupants. Wow. I know. I mean, they they must have had a, hundreds of people working this case. It was insane. Oh my gosh. They canvassed the area near the crime scene for witnesses And locals, this was kind of cool, they set up tables near the bridge with pots of hot coffee, donuts, sandwiches, and water for the mounted posse and Jeep patrol who spent the night searching for Ad and for those beginning the day search. So locals were like helping out. Everybody's searching for this poor guy. What what was the other thing that was found? There was his glasses and Mm. the hat. And his baseball hat, too. Two hats. Because he was a semi-pro Baseball player. That's right. Okay. All right. So helicopters even searched for a person stranded or hurt up and down the canyons or anything out of the ordinary in the hills or ravines, but still no further signs of ad could be detected. Like nothing anywhere. People don't just disappear into a mountain. I know. Do they? Well, they do, but (laughs) a lot. Actually, Actually, it happens happens a lot here, (laughs) but they do find the bodies Almost every okay, year. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, every year they find the bodies. Of, oh, that guy Jesus. that went hiking last year, remember him? Oh, God. She found him. <laughs> Listen to me. People don't just disappear in mountains. No, actually. <laughs> actually. <laughs> they do a lot, a lot, a lot up here. Okay. It happens. Yeah. Don't go by yourself. Okay. So during the door-to-door canvassing of the Turkey Creek Canyon area, one woman said it was very windy on the day of the incident, which made it harder to hear than usual. She was talking about how normally she, I think her house was above Turkey Creek where that bridge was. And she would, she could hear when people were talking it loud and clear. I think because of where she was, it would echo. Yes. Okay. And she would be able to hear, you know, when cars passed or. That's got to be hella annoying. Oh, (laughs) super annoying. And like, even if they had their radios playing and stuff, she could usually hear it. But she said that day it was so windy. She couldn't, it was hard to hear anything. But she did hear a voice and then a crackling noise, like a lightning striking a tree. Oh. Yeah. And so she's like, looks around, she looks out and she's looking for a fallen tree thinking, because it must happen a lot, probably. I mean, that's why we have so many fires. (laughs) So, but she didn't see anything. So she got to thinking that, well, you know, maybe I heard a gunshot because it sounds a lot like a gunshot. Oh. And she's like, in fact, it kind of sounded like two really close together gunshots. Oh. And another woman who lived about two and a half miles from Turkey Creek told a similar story. So this quote is from a passage in a book called The Death of an Heir by Philip Jett. And I'm not sure if it's a direct quote from how officers wrote or recorded the interview, but it's written with accents and all. And it actually reminds me a bit of how my dad talks. So it's so good. Yeah. So she says, right around eight o'clock yesterday, which is exactly how my dad says, like, Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> I went, <laughs> right around 8 o'clock yesterday, I was hanging the wash on a clothesline out back. The wind was blowing real hard. I could barely get a clothespin on them. Then I heard a shot in the canyon real clear. I usually work on Tuesdays cleaning folks' houses in Denver, but my boss called the night before and told me not to come in. The shot I heard was a far off shot, not a close up, but a far off shot toward the bridge. I think it's hilarious that she's like, gives all the details. Well, I didn't go to work. So this is why I I heard this. Throws all the extras. I love it. (laughs) Blowing real hard. Mm. So she said the same kind of thing. She heard some noises, real clear shot in the canyon, but a lot of people go hunting up there. I mean, it's Turkey Creek. Right. Several witnesses recalled seeing a yellow car that could have been a 51 Mercury in the area. I mean, they didn't go for muted colors at these in these uh, times. They went for People bright. don't like to blend. They no. don't like to blend. They <laughs> wanted to show off their fancy cars because horses right. were still a thing. So, right. you know, so. having a car is a big deal. 
One woman said she'd seen the yellow car parked near the bridge three consecutive days in a row when she was on her way to work at the Colorado School of Mines the week before Ad's disappearance. So that's weird. Why is this car here every day? One witness in particular had a keen eye and even recalled a partial license plate. Wow. I can't remember where I put my phone. No, I know. She's remembering... Well, this person, and I remember reading about this because I was like, oh, that makes sense. So I don't know if you've seen those mining shows where people are like gold rush and stuff and they protect, (laughs) I know, and they protect their mines or their areas where they mine. This guy was a miner. Okay. And so he really paid attention to every car that would come by thinking, you know, oh, they might be after something and he's a caretaker of the mine. And so he paid a, a lot of attention and he remembered the license plate. It was a 1960 Colorado style plate that read AT62. It might have been AT6205. Not 100% sure about the last two numbers. A was the county designation for Denver. So they knew it was a local car. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's a good tip. So within the greater Denver area, police found four Mercury sedans with that sequence in the license number, which is crazy for that time. I would have thought it'd be like one. Yeah. You know, but. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So, of course, they check them all. And one in particular catches their attention. It's registered to Walter Osborne, who bought the car just one month earlier. So police go down to Osborne's apartment in Denver, but it's empty. Turns out he had moved out the day after the kidnapping and left no forwarding address. Mm, Those aren't red flags at all. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And he said to be a very quiet, unsocial person. And from the descriptions people gave him of him, it sounds to me like he's possibly on the autism spectrum. Okay. Super, very socially awkward. Okay. But later it's discovered that he was a Fulbright scholar with a genius level IQ. So that's why I was thinking, ah, that would make sense for autism. You know, Mm -hmm. super smart, just socially Right. Really uh, emotionally immature. Yeah. In a dumpster behind the apartment, police found empty boxes for a pair of handcuffs and leg restraints. Yikes. It never occurred to me that handcuffs came in a box. I would not (laughs) have that either. But I thought that was amazing. They're finding all this stuff. Or leg restraints. Like, I'm going to go order some leg restraints. That's not weird. Sears catalog. (laughs) I mean... Everything they have that? came in the Sears catalog. They probably did. That's just kind of throwing me. And leg restraints. Who has leg, leg restraints? restraints. Ah! So agents dusted the room for fingerprints and they made a shocking discovery. The prints matched convicted killer, 31-year-old Joseph Corbett. Oh my ah. gosh. Detective work back that is amazing to me, like that they could do all this. So quickly, I'm sure it's because it's the FBI. But are, are these not the, these are obviously not the same people who worked on the John Bonet case? Oh God, no, definitely <laughs> Sorry, not. I couldn't. Definitely not those guys. Yeah, we needed these guys. Yes, these are the guys we needed. These are the guys we needed. He, these guys are amazing. So in 1951, Joe Corbett had shot another man and killed him. When he killed the other man, he claimed it was self-defense, but the man had been shot in the back of the head. So <laughs> Joe was convicted of murder. It was mean, another one of those times where they were being attacked while they were being like walking backwards, backwards towards you. Yes, I'm going to get you. I'm going I hate to when that happens. Oh, yeah. ah, while in prison, he was a model prisoner. Uh, of course. Of course. <laughs> so he's moved from max security to minimum security. And from there, he escaped. Ah, yeah. yeah. So that's why you don't do that. Corbett's mugshot was identified by the landlord as the man who had rented the apartment. Oh, so this Osborne fellow is, mm, uh, yeah, has an, an alias. alias yes. Mm, mm-hmm. Interesting. And under that alias, Joe worked as a paint mixer for the Benjamin Moore Paint Company. Oh, okay. Yeah. According to a coworker, he'd made, made several incriminating comments. He had told them to watch the newspapers that there'd be a big thing bust loose here and that you won't see me anymore. Who says not weird. That? <laughs> socially awkward people. So very socially. Socially, awkward. yeah, you're right. But, mm-hmm. you, oh my god. That- According to Benjamin Moore, Joe quit coming to work after the kidnapping, and they never heard from him again. 
Weird. Shocker. And a resident at the apartment told the FBI one other detail. He said he often heard typing coming from Joe's room late into the night. Mm, Big typer, is he? Big typer. He likes (laughs) typing. Big late night typer. (laughs) (laughs) Click, click, click. That would be annoying. Only two stores in Denver were identified as selling that particular brand of typewriter. One was the old F department store, and a clerk at that store recognized Joe Corbett. He was one of the few customers who paid cash and bought the typewriter four months prior to the kidnapping, which would have been pretty expensive. I know they said they sold it for $49.99. And at that time, that had to be quite a bit of money to wow. pay cash for. Wow. Okay. He was serious about his typewriter. He was very serious. Yes. <laughs> he wanted a good one. Eight days after the kidnapping and 1,700 miles away in New Jersey, police found the 1951 canary yellow mercury they'd been hunting for. In New Jersey? In New Jersey. But this is like, this is pre-internet and all this stuff. I know. That is why this case is so amazing to me. All the kind of gumshoe detective work is so cool in this one. Wow, okay. So the plates had been removed and the car had been doused in gas and lit on fire, so not much of worth remained. However, the serial number on the engine block survived and it led, I know, isn't that incredible? And it led authorities to a familiar name, Walter Osborne, Joe Corbett's alias, because it had been registered in the records for the car. Dang. I know. It's, and I mean, this is, it's not even a VIN number. It's a number on wow. the engine block, which is kind of crazy. But, uh-oh, now Grady's outside the door whining. Ew, you want to be on the podcast? Yeah, no, he'll just chew things. <laughs> okay, so investigators were certain of the man they needed to find, obviously, and they began circulated wanton, <laughs> circulating wanted posters in force. In fact, the hunt for Joseph Corbett would be the biggest manhunt in the U.S. history, second to, what did they say the other one was? It was, mm, I can't remember, Joe Dillinger. Wow. Yeah. Determined to take every shred of evidence as a clue, police went over the burned out vehicle with a fine tooth comb. Oh, this is amazing. On the undercarriage, there was soil, four layers of it. So they took each layer and studied it. The most recent layer contained sand, so it was most likely from New Jersey, the coast where the car was discovered. Wow, okay. The second layer was unremarkable, probably dirt built up from the long drive. And the oldest layer was unusual, with several types of shale in it, consistent with and matched to a control sample taken near Turkey Creek. Incredible! So, but they also found within that layer, those last two layers, large amounts of granite dust flecked with pink feldspar. For comparison, FBI agents took hundreds of soil samples from Denver and surrounding areas, hoping to find where the granite with the pink feldspar came from and hopefully lead them to add. In fact, they sent in 612 samples. So so many that the labs called them and told them to stop sending samples. We're we're never going to get to this. We... I can't even imagine. You better put your money somewhere else because this guy is never going to come home if you're waiting on us in these samples. Right. Because they had to probably look under a microscope with each thing to see if it would match. Incredible. So the soil with the granite was similar to the Pikes Peak granite. Pikes Peak is one of the 58 14er mountains here in Colorado, which are all mountain peaks above 14,000 feet. So the big thing about 14ers here that people come to climb them from around the world and they try to complete all the 14ers within their lifetime. I've never done one. So (laughs) I have not done a single 14er yet. Maybe I will someday. Pikes Peak gets its pink color from the potassium pink feldspar. Searching the Pikes Peak area, though it's is like a massive undertaking. I mean, these are huge mountains. So they searched mines. They're filled with mines, houses, empty buildings, stalls, ranches, but they couldn't find ad. I mean, this is like months and months of agonizing work. So I thought we'd take a break and think about pink feldspar for a while. Today's episode is sponsored by Relief Factor. 
Pain from everyday living, exercise, or just getting older is one of the leading causes of trips to the doctor and sleepless nights. It interferes with daily activities and keeps us from spending time with the people we love. If you have everyday pain, it stands to reason you need something you can feel comfortable with taking every day. That's why doctors invented 100% drug-free Relief Factor. Now, tens of thousands of customers are using Relief Factor every day to become mostly or completely pain-free. 100% drug-free Relief Factor features four key ingredients that each work on a different metabolic pathway to support your body's natural healing processes to respond to pain and inflammation. Now, you can try Relief Factor too. The three-week quick start retail price of almost $70 is now available to our listeners for just $19.95. Head to the link in our show notes to find out more. Start your journey to better health and less pain today with Relief Factor. So eight agonizing months after the kidnapping, no word, no nothing, waiting. Well, did she ever run the ad? She never ran the ad. (laughs) Maybe that's the problem. I'm selling a goddamn tractor. Who wants to buy my freaking tractor? Oh, oh my God. So eight months okay. after, in an area frequented by hunters in the Pikes Peak area, searchers found a human skull, Ooh. bones, and the clothing Adolf Kors III had been wearing oh. the day of his disappearance. They found a right shoulder blade that had two holes in it that were caused by a high-speed projectile. There were two holes also in the back of Ad's jacket that was found with the bones. Oh, wow. Investigators also found a pocket knife at the scene engraved with the initials AC the third. Obviously his. The bones and skull were in fairly good condition, and they're able to be used to identify through dental records that it was indeed Adolf Kors the third. So at this point, the law's like, okay, we know Joe's the killer. But now they have the task of trying to hunt him down. They knew he ran to New Jersey, but they hadn't heard hide no no hair of him. So they believed Joe had planned this years in advance. He had watched Ad to find the best area to kidnap him in. And one month before the kidnapping, Joe purchased the 51 Mercury and stored it even in an off-site area away from his apartment so no one there would know he owned it. So he was trying to cover his tracks, but... Oh my gosh. He typed the ransom note and mailed it to Mrs. Coors on the morning of the kidnapping. And then he put the cuffs and leg restraints in the back of the car. This is all like how they think it happened. He drove out to Turkey Creek Bridge to wait for Adolf. And he made it look like his car had broken down, like opens the... The hood? Yeah, hood. Thank you. I'm like, tailgate? No. The thing? The thing? The hood? The thing? The thing? The front thing? Yeah, the front thing. So he'd open the hood to make his car look like it had broken down. And Ad was always like a super helpful guy. So he probably stopped his car, got out, offered to help. And they think when Joe brandished the gun, Ad wasn't the type to let himself be taken. He's like, nope. And he fought him. And then they think that Ad probably tried to run back to his car. And that's when he was shot in the back. And the shots punctured a lung, they figured, and proved to be fatal. Probably pretty quickly fatal. So there was no way there was going to be any kind of like return or anything. No, he had killed him. I think uh, there was just, I don't think he meant to, but um, with Ad dead, Joe panicked and gave up on his plan and then drove up into the Rocky Mountains, 45 minutes away from Golden to dump the body. And as a hunter, he was familiar with the area of Pikes Peak that he put him in. Okay. He then left the next day and tried to burn away the evidence left in the car and he hadn't planned on killing Ad. He only wanted the money. He thought he's covering all his bases, but the the true gumshoe detective work of the police and FBI made it possible to track him down, which is, I thought that was so cool, all the work that they is, did. Yes. Especially at that time. For seven mo- months, he looted one of the nation's biggest manhunts in history. In Vancouver, Canada, on October of 1960, a woman saw the press reports about Joe Corbett killing Ad, and she called the FBI to report that a man matched his description that was living in her apartment building. (gasps) So they go up there, and they find him at the apartment building. They knock, and he opens it partway, and I remember reading, he's like, oh, it's me, you got me. And that's all, like, he's just like, you found me. That's it. He surrenders, like, immediately. Holy crap, I didn't expect that. (laughs) Um, So they searched his room, but the typewriter 
or the pistol wasn't found among his possessions. So they don't know what he did with them, but it didn't matter. They had enough evidence. He did leave behind among his meager possessions, including um, chains and padlocks and a paperback copy of Robert Travers' book, Anatomy of a Murder. Oh, dude. But authorities had enough proof from the car records and such and the dirt, the soil, and he pled not guilty, but he was sentenced to life in prison. So he still wouldn't say he was ever did it, but he just said, oh, you got me. But he didn't say gotcha. that he ever did. Just that he knew he was being looked for. Right. Oh, uh, you found me. In Colorado at the time, and possibly even now, I didn't look it up, but that's what the show I was watching said, that they thought it still was the same. You can't have the death penalty on the table unless there's an eyewitness or a confession. They had neither. Oh. Isn't that crazy? So that's one of Colorado's rules. So it couldn't huh, be on the interesting. table. So he wasn't up for the death penalty. And it was the first high-profile case in the U.S. where soil evidence was crucial to solving a case. Oh, my gosh. And they said soil evidence now is even difficult to determine. So for someone at that time to even think of looking at that and having labs analyze it is insane. And the lab lab people are like, what the frick? (laughs) Why do you want me to look at so much freaking dirt? I hate this dirt. And the the way that it was found to actually figure out where the car had traveled was like revolutionary at the time. I'm still floored by the fact that they figured out it was the same car in New Jersey. Yes. Like just from a serial number. Awesome. Such cool work. Yeah. So my guess was like the FBI had probably been doing research like this, but since it was such a high profile case, they're like, we'll pull out all the stops and do it. And this is why if you're trying to pull off some kind of a high profile murder, don't buy a yellow car. Yes. Just saying. Try to blend. Yeah. Try to blend. <laughs> Maybe don't make yourself a <laughs> target. Yeah. Since it was such a high profile case of a very wealthy royal U.S. family, they pulled no punches where, you know, I don't know if anyone else at this time would have gotten such treatment. Right. Such attention but, and everything. Yeah. Right. But people wanted to make sure their beer was okay. I mean, beer is very important. They couldn't let the Coors Corporation just like. No. Just be destroyed by this but yes absolutely the entire economy would collapse i mean (laughs) there was a lot riding on this (laughs) everything yeah they even had some speculation i know with his dad and stuff whether it could be the unions that did it you know and stuff but apparently ad was really close to like the union reps and stuff and so there was no thought that that could have been a thing about it so so he just he just picked that guy. He was like, here's a wealthy guy. I think I can pull this I off. I think I can do this. I yep. got my typewriter. Mm-hmm. On Friday, December 12th of 1980, Joe Corbett walked out of the Canyon City prison. He was originally released on parole in July of 1979 after serving a little less than 19 years for Coors what? murder. So he immediately, after getting released, boarded a plane to San Francisco where he had a place to live. Then he flew back to Denver the next day to close his bank account. I don't understand that at all. But doing that, leaving the state at all at that time was a violation of the terms of his parole. And then he came back? Yeah. It's so bizarre. Wow. For someone who who planned a a murder and kidnap so well. Yeah. That's pretty dumb. did not plan that very well. I don't know whether he didn't understand the rules. It's weird. (laughs) So for three days, officials are like, oh, what do we do? We're unsure where Joe is. What do we do? Do we put him back in prison? I don't know. He did turn himself back in and he was sent back to prison. And over the ensuing months, as he applied again for release, the public debated whether he should be given another chance. And prosecutors and even Governor Dick Lamb uh, questioned. Sorry, (laughs) Dick. I'm sorry. I couldn't just let that go. (laughs) Uh, it didn't sound as bad or right, you know, writing it didn't affect me as much as saying it out loud. Sorry. <laughs> Dick Lamb questioned the wisdom of allowing a two-time convicted killer back into society. Right? I mean, twice. The first right. time he escaped. Yeah. Um, hi. <laughs> so finally, more than 17 months after his first taste of freedom, Joe Corbett was moved to Denver and ordered to spend five more years on supervised parole. He found work first in a manufacturing plant and then as a truck driver for the Salvation Army. 
And although he was good about showing up for his appointments with his parole officer, he also exhibited two very different sides to his personality. So he's still described as intellectually incredibly smart, but the parole officer said he's unbelievably immature emotionally and he was easily excitable. I, which was weird. I don't like how that sounds. I didn't either. I was like, <laughs> Ugh. But in 1985, Joe was released from supervision. The love of God. I know. So he was out there for a long time. Over the years, reporters tried to interview him to get his story, but he was elusive and closed mouthed. And at the age of 80, Joe, diagnosed with cancer and declining rapidly, committed suicide in his Denver apartment with a single gunshot wound to his head. He left no note and no one to claim his body. Wow. But here's another interesting detail. 27 years before Adolf Coors III's murder, the FBI had notified the Coors family that there was a plot to kidnap Adolf Coors Jr. What? But the attempt was interrupted, so it had never been carried out, but they made the family aware of it. So they were aware they were targets. And they made no precautions whatsoever. I guess not. Isn't that crazy? It, I doubt it could have been him because he was only 32. <laughs> When he did this one. So who knows? Someone else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 27 years before that. Maybe it was like his dad. Or his Maybe. Ooh, creepy. Mm-hmm. Well, he read about it somehow. Well, I don't know how he would have read about it, but. Yeah. Interesting. But that's so crazy. You think yeah. they would have like been like, oh, we're targets. Yeah. We should be more we careful. Amp up our security or maybe not go to work alone. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Wow. But they thought it was small town enough that, I guess, I don't know. That's weird. That's a crazy story. It's a cool story. And, of course, Coors is still here, and it's huge, and you can tour it and stuff. Is there another Adolf? <laughs> is there a fourth? No. Anyway, That's, would you like oh my God, to... I that know. is such a good story. It's a good story. It's sad that he didn't make it through because at that time he fought back. Had he yeah. not, maybe he would have made it. I don't know, because they w- were willing to give up the money. But... I don't know. There were a lot of stipulations, though. There were specific <laughs> stipulations. It would have been really, yeah. They would have had to gone through a lot of. I would like two hundred thousand dollars in tens and twenties, please. I know. Well, and and I I still couldn't figure out what that code was for. I'm like, what did AMA something 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 stand for? And I couldn't find anything about it. If anybody is listening to this and has any yeah. idea, please message us and let us know. I have no clue what NA nine dash four four five five is wait at maybe it's an air force or an airplane what was it na nine dash four four five five for instructions after ad appears na i wonder so i don't know if it's an address you know like a yeah or an airport terminal or something i don't know it was so weird yeah if someone knows please find out yeah tell us because i couldn't find anything about it anywhere Okay, that was a great story. The um, technical work that the FBI went to. I'm, to I'm it out. impressed, I gotta say. Very impressive. I'm very impressed. Yes. All right. Do you want to hear my sources? I would love to hear your sources. Oh, one of the best FBI.gov. They have such cool stuff on there. They even have photos really? of the actual ransom letter. Oh. So I'll put that on our oh, site that's and stuff. Cool. So it's pretty cool to see. Wikipedia, shocker. Of course. Denver Post, where. They would have put the ad in. Never Mm -hmm. showed up. (laughs) Never showed up. Stratford Medical Detectives Forensic Files Season 11, Episode 41, called Bitter Brew. (laughs) (laughs) Stack. We also had Vice.com, LongReads.com, and The Death of an Heir by Philip Jett. That's the book that was written. So I Long Reads, was that because the ransom note was like eight pages long? (laughs) Can we stop putting out 14-page ransom notes? (laughs) Keep it to the point, people. Wow. What happened to the ones where everyone, where they just cut out the letters from the magazine? Oh, yeah. Well, that's just, you know. That's why you had to make them short, because it would take so long to cut out all those stupid letters. Oh, my God, right? (laughs) This guy had too much to say. Maybe he started with, like, cutting them all out, and then he was like, this is going to take forever. I need to get me a typewriter. <laughs> I got to get this. One of those good ones, though, because I like typing. Right, exactly. I'm right. good I at it. I want to type late into the night. Yes. Click, 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 it's too click, bad he ever committed the first murder, because he, I mean, he was a scholar, you know, a very 
he had a Fulbright scholarship. I mean, he went to college. Hey, it was self-defense. That guy was walking yeah. backwards towards him. <laughs> What'd you expect him to He do? was coming fast. <laughs> he was right. He was much I, faster I, than was someone should decision. be. It was a split decision. Awesome. Oh, I like that one. Thank you. That was great. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Putting thank up with you, all those for listening. details and me going cross-eyed. And oh my God. Sneezing. She's been swatted flies. And- <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be in uh, recording from the dump. I don't know. <laughs> do you have do you have unburied bodies down there? Is that I, the problem? I think I might. I'm not sure. I can't remember if I got rid of them all. Or... <laughs> I was going to try lime this time. You know, you always oh, hear about that. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, Gacy was big on lime. Oh, yeah. That was, well, yeah, that was his... That was that his was thing. His yeah. yeah, it worked well for him. For, it did. You know. All right. Well, come back next week for another yeah. great episode. Oh, yes. This is episode 13. <gasps> this is the season finale? This is the season finale. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. I know. Thank you, everybody, Thank for listening. You. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. To see images from this story, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ODFM Podcast or on our website at odfmpodcast.com, where you'll also find a link to our merch store, where you can get awesome stuff like t-shirts, mugs, stickers, and more. And if the weekly podcast just isn't enough to fill your ODFM cup full, join our fan club on Patreon for more content like minisodes, bloopers, and discounts at our merch store. That site is patreon.com slash odfmpodcast. And if you do love our bloopers and need more than we naturally do, which is a lot, buy us a glass of wine at buymeacoffee.com slash ODFM podcast. Thanks for listening to another episode of ODFM, hosted by Kelly DeVries and Jenna Swanson. Production and editing by Kelly DeVries. Theme music by Eric Swanson. ODFM is a satirical true crime podcast for entertainment purposes only. The stories you hear are serious and true. The comments and opinions are not. We apologize if any of our content is harmful or disrespectful.